Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week on the Mike Wise Show, our guest is one of the best basketball minds in the world. He also happens to have an MBA from one of the top business schools in the country. And he's standing by. But first, as usual, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? That's right, Darlene. Thank you again. If you've ever watched SportsCenter, our guest is a familiar face and voice. Tim Legler is ESPN's number one studio analyst for the association. In addition to a 10-year NBA career where he is one of the top three-point shooters in the league, he also holds an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. I can't even get in there. And we thank him for taking some time to visit with us today. Welcome, Legs, and welcome back to the podcast, your second appearance. Mike, good to be on again, man, during these very unusual times we find ourselves in. But I appreciate you reaching out, man. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, so I, I got to be honest with you. You made me cry this week. I, um, when you called me up and said that you were never ESPN material, you, you, know, you have the perfect face for radio, and, you, and, and I hope you never grace our business again, I, I fell to my knees in tears, and I thought it was harsh and awful. But that's not really that's not really what happened. If anybody uh, who's got a Facebook account follows Tim Legler, uh, he paid one of the great tributes of all time to his his lifelong friend, mentor and his high school basketball coach, Ralph Crockett. I just want to read this to listeners who haven't seen it yet, uh, because it really it's so touching and it puts us all in touch with either a teacher or coach that did a lot for us. Coach Crockett came into my life when I was a 13-year-old freshman walking across the campus of John Randolph Tucker High School in Richmond, Virginia, almost 40 years ago. A simple question, quote, hey, Slim, you coming out for the basketball team? Began an initial conversation that would evolve into one of the most meaningful and impactful relationships of my life. Uh, he died this week, and man, you... I, uh, it just, uh, I, I'm sure you had a, a lump in your throat writing this. Tell us about what he meant to you. Yeah, man, it's, it's, I said it uh, in my post that words really, this is one time in my life when I can honestly say words can't possibly uh, come close to really portraying the impact that an individual had on my life. Um, I got that text message early in the morning and that he had passed. And I mean, it, it, was no different than getting hit when I have lost family members, um, losing my father. I've lost a sister, um, just lost my, 
18-year-old Jack Russell just lost her on Christmas Eve, who had uh, such a huge part of the family. And this was oh. a similar type of feeling, getting that information from the athletic director at my at my high school. Um, I knew he had been sick. He had been into these early stages of dementia. Um, he had lost his wife a number of years ago. He was in an assisted living facility, and I had tried to make an effort to get to see him whenever I went back to Richmond to see my mom or, and my sister. Um, I would I would try to see him. So I knew he was sick. I mean, obviously, during these times, very difficult to get to see people. Um, and so, you know, I, I, th- that that day had run through my mind so many times. Like one of these days, I know I'm go- this is going to happen. I kept telling like my, my, my sister and my brother-in-law and then my high school friends that still live down there, hey, man, make sure if you ever see anything about Coach Crockett, I've got to make sure someone lets me know because I don't know how else I would find out. So I, and there I was waking up in the morning. I'm kind of in the kitchen making some coffee and grabbing my phone and looking at my messages. And, and there it was. And, man, it was a gut punch. And it hit me with so much emotion because, you know, I think about – and I've told everybody that knows me well that's in my life has heard me talk about this man. And I say he changed the course of my life. I don't think in any way that's an overstatement. I was – Headed for, you know, I went, I went to that specific high school to play baseball. They were a baseball powerhouse in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Baseball was my best sport. My father coached baseball for 30 years. We were a baseball family first and foremost. Um, and that was my sport. And I went there specifically to play for another legendary coach, their baseball coach, a guy named Ronnie Atkins, who went on to coach University of Richmond for decades after I graduated. Um he that was like the program and I went there for that reason but I grew a lot that year so I was I grew seven inches in less than a calendar year so <laughs> I had never really played organized basketball it was just like a recess type of thing and I was walking across campus I saw him he was on parking lot duty he was sitting in a chair and he hit me with that southern draw asked me if I was going to come out for the team we struck up a conversation I said you know I'm really more of a baseball guy I don't know if I'm going to play and he just was relentless. He even would stop my sister on campus, who was a senior. He found out that I had a sister there, and he'd stop her and, and put pressure on her to make sure, um, you know, she convinced me to try out for the team. And you know, there it was. I got talked into it, and I and I went out for the for the team, and I got cut from JV. Actually, I played freshman basketball in ninth grade, but over the course of that year, in dealing with him, and the way he took an interest in me and, and the amount of self-confidence he was giving me and how much it was obvious he believed that he was looking at something he thought could be special in basketball and the way he took me under his wing. He became a second father to me, and I had a great relationship with my dad. I had the best dad in the world, but this was like having two of those. You know, Some people will talk about mm-hmm. having that father figure in their life because they didn't have the initial father figure. I had that. I had a phenomenal dad. I have incredible memories of my dad growing up. He passed in 1992 from lung cancer. He was a smoker. And how I old was him when he? I was 25 years old. But I had how old, a phenomenal how old was your, relationship. How old, was, how old was your dad when he passed? My dad was 59. Whoa, that's young. Yeah, he smoked a long time. He you know, started by getting to have it probably back in high school and um, all the way through. And, uh, yeah, it was tough because I was just starting out my professional career I was a couple of years out of LaSalle and trying to, you know, navigate the CBA. And I went to Europe for a year and he was sick during that entire time. So that was a very difficult time. And then finally came home and he was in a hospice program for a couple of months at my sister's house. And I was there that entire summer. Um, and so it was really, he never really got to see me really make it in the NBA. He saw me on some 10 day contracts, but he never really, my career took off literally that, 
right after that, that following fall. But so, you know, I tell people, hey, I'm blessed because I had this incredible relationship with my father who was such a you know, huge part of, of my life and who I am. But then I had a second one because that's exactly what Ralph Crockett was to me and, and the interest he took in me and the, just the amount of commitment that he was showing me to be there any day, any time of day. I mean, the, the number of times, and we had an athletic director at the time that was, believe it or not, or I'm sorry, a principal that was not really pro-athletics. So he was one of those guys that would like lock the gym right after school and put the baskets up and like not want kids in there to to try to get better. Um, so my basketball coach, Coach Crockett, he would he would sneak me in there. We'd go into the back gym late at night and dim the lights so you couldn't see him from the street. <laughs> and he would rebound for me for hours. And he was the first guy that showed me you know drills on how to you know become a better ball handler and all of those things. And I was so tall, I was six four. I was you know, for high school at that time. I was a tall. I played center, but going into my senior year, he realized that, look, if you want to play college basketball, you're going to have to become a guard, and that means you're going to have to play point guard as a senior, and just specifically to develop your ball handling skills and yeah. show college you know, recruiters that you can, you can play in the perimeter. And so, you know, he, he dedicated so much of his free time to, yeah. to, to helping me achieve my dreams. I feel like right now that there are some sports lessons – uh, that that I learned and I, I know you learned that are going to really prevail here from sacrificing personal wants and needs for the greater good to discipline, you know, how you practice affects how you play, mental toughness, understanding situations, reacting properly, family first, you know, the teams we played on, are, you know, were like second families to us and certainly you and leadership. It's necessary to every level. We can all lead in different ways. It, just talk about the the things that you learned from a man like that and the things you learned in life from the game and what it brought you and how, how we can almost apply some of that now. Oh yeah. No, no question. I think, you know, and, and you talked about that your coach and have a, a different experience in terms of he was more of a Bobby Knight type of guy. The interesting thing about coach Crockett was he knew exactly when he needed to put his foot on my throat. And we mm. like, for instance, here's an example he saw something in me early on, and I started. I said I made freshman team as a freshman. I started varsity as a sophomore, so I had an incredible. We had a really good team. I had an incredible growth during that year, and so even as a sophomore, he would pull me aside. I wasn't a captain. We had senior leadership. We had a couple D1 players on that team, and I was a kid. He would bring after practice, and he would constantly be talking to me, preparing me to be the leader the following year when some of those seniors graduated. He was going to make me captain as a junior. And one of the things he said he was going to expect of me every single day, they don't do this anymore, I don't think, anywhere at practice, but we, they put cones in the four corners of the court, and we ran, we ran 20 laps, which is the equivalent of a mile. It's supposed to be anyway. And every day we did that right after we stretched. That's the first thing we did. And we did it for you ran time. A mile or, you ran a mile in the gym. Every single day, 20 laps before practice. And it was for time. And he expected me and told me and would be yelling at me the entire – I had to win. I had to be first. He said if, if the leader has to oh, be this first. Is the leader has to be willing to do things and push himself through boundaries and push himself through fatigue in a way that no one else can, because that's how you get people to follow you. And he's and telling you that as you're running. He'd be screaming at me the entire time. He had a, he what would take he, another cone, a fifth cone, what and he'd be screaming? yelling through the end of the cone, like a megaphone at me and saying my last name. And here, the reason that, that I could, I could allow myself to be pushed in that way was because 
I knew that this person loved me as much as my own family did. And, mm-hmm. and he saw something in me that I didn't even see yet. And I was, I was, he was convincing me on a daily basis what was there and what I could be and what my potential was. The other thing he taught me. Is, is it, Tim, is he saying, Legler, you bum? Or, you know, like, yeah. what, what is he saying? Yeah, Legler, you better not let him catch you. Shoe heart's right on your ass. You better not let him catch you. <laughs> you better pick it up, Legler. You're all going to run again if you, don't, if you don't finish first. I mean, the whole time. Oh. And, and actually what it did was it, I had some kids at that time that were a little bit, you know how it is in high school, you get like some jealousies. Sure. And so some kids that, you know, they were a little bit jealous, they not only of that they weren't quite as good, but also because I had a better relationship with Coach and they saw him really going the extra mile for me and things like that. But what it did was by him doing that to me and me allowing myself to be subjected to that, it actually made me have a better relationship with some of those kids. Because they're like, man, that's 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 pretty brutal, man. Like he's really hardy. Like I don't think I could take that, you know. So that he was just he was just showing me how to be a leader and pushing me at the same time, but doing it in a way that, you know, I totally understood what this was all about because of how much genuine affection he had for me. And there's one other thing I want to point out about him because I coached, you know, I coached 500 AAU games. Yeah, no, you, know, a, lot you, of, you, you a lot of your kids went to college. Yeah, they're all playing college basketball right now. It's a lot of people that know me know that one of my dreams has always been to be a Division One head coach. Um, and a lot of the coaching, believe it or not, even though you're going back to the 80s when he coached me, a lot of the things that I have imparted on my players over the years, and even at my basketball camp now that I run in South Jersey and the kids that I interact with, are, are things that he taught me directly. And I think none more important than this. This is what he, he taught me very early on. And I, uh, you'll hear me say this constantly if you hear me coach, that you have, you have found beauty in basketball when you can convince players to cut as hard when they know they're not getting the ball as when they may receive the ball. If, if, you can convince, lesson, if you can man. convince kids to cut and screen that hard, full, knowing full well, 90% of the time when we run this action, you're not seeing the ball. If you can convince them to do that, you have, now have something special. You have a team now that's going to be very difficult to beat. And that's exactly how my AAU teams played when I coached them. How do you tell, I'm just curious, how do you tell, like, one, by the way, that image of you running around the court and your coach screaming at you and you all the things going on in your head uh, and, and how you had to find a way to beat your teammates. I, I'm almost getting emotional. They, that's like a miracle moment, like Herb Brooks and the freaking ice skaters uh, when they go, where are you from? Where you know, like, uh, you know, I, I no, just, very, no, it's, it's like a good again, correlation. Again. I actually have compared it. I've compared it at times to Gene Hackman and Jimmy Chitwood and who's oh, my favorite movie. Yeah, same. It's my favorite sports movie, and um, I think every young basketball player should watch, honestly. I think it's one of the most motivational, inspirational stories you could ever see, and it just happens to be a basketball movie, which we both love. But um, I, I just I think it's the, I think every team getting ready to play any big game, that should be mandatory team watch the night before. Uh, oh, that's a great one. The other one I would always uh, love was Hoop Dreams. So real. Yeah, that's a great one. I would love to show a struggling team that in the middle of a season, an NBA team, that some of which haven't probably even seen that movie, and to show, you know, you guys think you love the game. Look at these two kids. And and they didn't even make it. Look how much – but at any rate, that, that's a great – 
I'm sure your favorite scene now is mine, which um, he's out there and Jimmy Chitwood shooting in the on the dirt. Yep. And finally, Gene Hackman goes, you know, and what I know about the game, Jimmy, I don't care if you play or you don't. But he misses. Oh, it's freaking poetry. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great scene when he's out there and it balls like you know you. goes through and it doesn't even bounce. It like rolls off to the corner yeah. of the dirt and he has to go pick it up. <laughs> yeah. uh. It kind of reminds me in some ways of you know when when I was growing up, my dad, we didn't have a, a a big house, we didn't have a really big driveway. We had a very narrow driveway, and my dad put a pole up and he took a a piece of plywood and put it on that pole and put a hoop on it. And that was my first basketball hoop that I ever had. And I all the way through high school, I was. I was first team all state in Virginia and I was still shooting on that exact same hoop as I was being an all state player in Virginia, because that's, that's all we had out there. But I was out there and he put a floodlight out there for me so I could go out there anytime of night. And so when I see that scene with Jimmy Chitwood and Hoosiers, it does kind of remind me of my obsessive, um, you know, work ethic when I was growing up and, and just on this makeshift hoop but it didn't matter. It was 10 feet high, right? Gene Hackman took him in there for the state championship game. He measured it because they were all in awe. He measured it from the floor to the rim. He measured it from the foul line to the hoop. He said, yep, that's what I thought, just like our gym back in Hickory. (laughs) A couple more things from the post, which I, uh, you know, really took me and reminded me really, Tim, of my own high school coach, this guy in Hawaii named Bob Nakagawa. He wasn't as nurturing as Coach Crockett was. I mean, this guy, he'd smack you on the leg. He, uh, you know, he was he was the Bobby Knight type, but he also knew who to push and who not to. And I was I was a kid that I needed to be pushed. And he caught me between classes, skipping classes in 10th grade when I just made the varsity and I was all happy. And and he said to me, uh, he goes, I want you to go out for cross country next year. And I'm like, oh, OK. And he goes, I don't think basketball is your sport. You're not going to have the grades. You're not. And I mean. You know, at that point, that's all I that's all that was my whole life. That was my 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 bedroom was cut up sports illustrated photos of everybody dunking. And, and I was like, right. I, I can't, tough, I, tough what do you mean hear, you're, take, yeah. you're taking basketball for me? What? And I swear to God, not only did my academics pick up my attitude, it was just a defining moment. I love this part you said about the uh, Ralph Crockett, you know, he wasn't the most creative with X's and O's, but he had a way of making each player feel valued, appreciated and loved. And, I, you know, I, I've seen a lot of you said I've seen a lot of coaches destroy kids confidence and love for the game because of their egos and insecurities. I was one of the lucky ones to have someone who lifted me up and made me believe in myself. I, that is so big at that age. And I don't know. I just I read that man and I, I, I got a little weepy. I thought about my own coach. And, and I think there's yeah. another another thing that happened this week. Uh, my wife and I were watching uh, CNN. I looked up and I said to my wife. We're going to find in the week, we're going to know someone who died or or got this coronavirus. And literally the whole screen is this guy, this face of Alan Finder, like one of my two enterprise editors at the New York Times when I was covering the Knicks and the NBA. And I'm like, what? He's dead. You know, guy dies of Corona. He's 72 years old. Just floored me in my living yeah. room. I had no idea he was sick or anything. I started reading no bits about him. Kindest guy was one of those persons who, I mean, you can relate with this as now a, a, a media personality with ESPN. It's like he was one of these people that that made your story sing, but he never took your voice away. You know, he's right. sort of like he made you better. And I don't know, it just, that that combined with your 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 post on Coach Crockett, man, it put me over the edge. And anyway, th- thanks for making me feel this week. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in what, what Coach, Coach 
uh, Valvano say, uh, give yourself time to think, laugh, and cry every day, and and I was I was happy to do that yesterday. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty it was pretty uh pretty powerful week for me as well, man. I just mm. it's it's you know it's you start to really reflect on mortality, and it's, mm. it's you know and you know I'm I'm you know 53 years old, and so you hope that you got a lot of time left, but not only with what's going on in our society right now and what we're all watching every single day. And it's, um, you know, just how many families and how many people and how many people's lives are being affected and devastated by this, but just loss. Right. And even I, t- mm-hmm. I mentioned, you know, it, it, some people might not get this if they're not dog lovers or they're not, you know, they don't have that connection and that bond, but you know, my, my Jack Russell jazzy, uh, she passed away, um, t- December 23rd. And, you know, to put that in perspective, how long we had her, she was almost 18 years old. So I, I got that dog. When I got divorced, my my kids were six and three. And, you know, they, they were going through a tough time emotionally. And I thought, you know what, we'll get my my daughter wanted a dog so badly. I don't want to get I'm going to get a dog and this is going to be their childhood dog. And it's going to help them emotionally kind of go, when they're going through this tough time. So think about it. I got get the dog when my daughter was six. My that my daughter is now teaching second grade for her second year, like she's two <laughs> years out of college, and that dog just passed. So, this was a dog oh. that saw them all the way through elementary school, middle school, saw her through high school, through college, and two years of her professional career as a school teacher. That's how long Jazzy was a part of our family. So we lost her right mm. before Christmas, and then you know my my uh, high school basketball coach passing. So it's just you know you start to really sit and think and about mortality in general and it really kind of yeah. hits you when things like that happen people uh, so close to you uh you, me and you i mean w- w- the only thing we don't have in common is um that you you were a, you were a basketball player who had a career and i never got past junior college and um and you have hair and you're good looking and you have a tv deal and i'm sitting in my basement doing a podcast but other than that we have a lot in common i had a dog that was 18 years old when she died it was a it was a a collie mix that bounded on our doorstep in Hawaii when I was 12. And at the end I had her to, I was 30 years old when she died. And oh my goodness, when, when Queenie, her name was Queenie died. And then just same thing like Jazzy. I had a, I got a golden lab in 2006 when I was going through a personal meltdown. I mean, ended up at the support group for men's intimacy and blew my third engagement including a woman that, you know, I, I, you know, I could have been happy with, but I was in no shape to do so. And, you know, and I really was screwed up. That dog predated my wife, my, my three kids now. And when she died in 2018, golden lab, Luli, Oh my gosh, that was just, uh, it was, in fact, I'm going to send you an in, whatever they did. They did this, this American life on a story about us falling into a canal together and almost drowning and uh, I'm going to send it to you because it'll bring you it bring back how much uh, you know, th- those th- those creatures are family members. They're, oh yeah. Uh, anybody no, that no says question. they're not anybody that says they're not hasn't had one. <laughs> well, and we have we have four others. So we had five dogs, and we oh, now, wow. we, now we're now we have four. And yeah, so it, it's it's you know it's it's you sit there, and I'm looking at our oldest one now, Shorty, um, a rescue, and um, that's the first dog my my wife and I got together. He's been with us ten years, so he's he's going to be twelve at some point in the fall. And I think, man, please give me eighteen years. I mean, if you, I can get eighteen years out of you, 
Um, you know, that's all I'm asking for now. Jazzy set the bar really high by giving us 18 years because you shouldn't expect that from a dog. But I think it I think it speaks to how much she was loved and how much she felt loved. And she didn't want to go anywhere, man. She was a tough she was a tough girl. She ran this house and she was the alpha of our pack. Um, and it's it's been interesting watching them now sort of reestablish who's in charge now that Jazzy's not here. Uh, Tim Legler is my guest. You know his voice. Uh, he, he could talk hoops all day, and we'll get to a couple things about that. But another post I love, and it's so apropos for this time. I probably, if anybody's listening to this podcast, I, I definitely lean left. Uh, but I don't. I hate militancy on both sides. I just, you know, and, and I'm one of these people that I hate the algorithm thing where you only get to hear people. Um, that you want to hear as opposed to what you need to hear. If I'm not talking to people who lean right, then I'm not learning anything about this country or anything about myself. I love this post. Man, oh man, do you learn a lot about people during times of adversity, Tim Legler wrote, especially unprecedented adversity like what this country is facing. Shows a real lack of character to just sit back and point fingers and throw uninformed results at the people doing everything they can to help this country deal with this Amazing there are so many geniuses out there who have all the answers. How about shutting the hell up unless you are offering something hopeful, helpful, encouraging? I'm the same way. I, you know, I, I, I've taken shots and, and any media criticism on how people are doing, that's just part of their job, just like we take on players and stuff in our own world. But, but we're, in a, we're in a place now where it doesn't matter if you're left, right, conservative, Republican, Dem, liberal social justice warrior or or whatever you are in this world, we have a common value. We don't want to see people that we love um, uh, perish. We don't want right. to see. We, and 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 why can't we get behind that and just realize that these people, whoever they are in charge, whether we voted for them or not, are doing the best they can and and trying to uh, put the right people around them to get things done. No, I couldn't have possibly agree more. Couldn't have said it better. I mean, I, and I what had happened that day when I posted that, I just had gotten to a point. Where, you know, and I'm guilty like everybody else, you're scrolling through your social media, whatever, and you're, these are people that you know that are just every day on a mission to go on a rant to score points, like politically. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not what we should be focusing on at all. I, you know, can you imagine being the people at the front of this that have to make these kinds of decisions that oh. are responsible for, you know, for so many people? Um, and and so to see, and I'm not necessarily even talking about like the first responders and the people that the doctors and the nurses that are that are literally imperiling their lives to try to help people save theirs. That's obviously something that every person should be able to understand and have empathy for and compassion for. But I'm talking about the people that have sat back and they act as if you know this should have been stopped. Like there's sure. no way this should have happened in this country. Yeah. It's just you know, and to see that we're, we're day here. after day, day we're after here. day yeah, after however, day, totally. And we're here. We're here. It doesn't matter how we got here. Right. It doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter where this virus started. It doesn't matter where it's here. And if we don't deal with it, and you know, like this woman said that I did a story on for the CBS and DC, Jadik. Like I'm going out, and I, I might get it. I'm thirty something, but. I know that I'm not going to die from it if I get it. I'm going out to take it to people that are shut. I'm taking goods to people that are shut in. They can't leave their house uh, that are 75 years old or they're immune compromised. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring them goods. I don't care. These are the, this is what we got to be doing instead of being on social media and taking shots and trying to, 
trying to win the next election. I, I, I get so pissed off at this stuff. Yeah, so do I. And, and it's the person, the, the specific type of person that's bothered me the most is the person that now, in, in hindsight and knowing what we know now a few months into this, are experts in this oh. and and you know and the, the just, amateur and, you know, the amateur right. public health officials <laughs> exactly or hey how about even just a just this people that i know that are just it's just a housewife that's at home that's raising kids but all of a sudden she's now an expert in this <laughs> and it's all because it has a political slant to it where you want to you know you want to score points for your side and it it's just and that's why I just had reached a boiling point. Something specific had been written. I read, and it just really got under my skin. And I, and, and you'll, you know, you can see by my post, my post typically. I'm not a huge social media guy, so yeah. when I do post, it's typically something that's really, really heartfelt about, you know, sure. a, a friend, or a, you know, like this one about Coach Crockett passing. My, you know, my son's 21st birthday that just passed, and he's in, you know, quarantined. And I, you know, you're thinking, man, that what a tough break for a 21 year old. This is where he's ringing in. He can't even go buy his first beer legally because he's not allowed to go into a bar right now because they're all shut down. Like, you know, emotional things, anniversaries, and, and like people that really mean a lot to me. But this one is something that really got under my skin. And I was like, I, I just have to say something. And the people are going to know out there, they're going to know who I'm specifically talking to. And that's what I want without calling them out by name because I don't believe in necessarily doing that. So I wanted yeah. to make my point, which is just. Can you just stop, please stop acting like you know everything you could have prevented this on your own. Someone, you know, who they think maybe was should have been smarter in charge should have stopped this at our at our shoreline and at our border and never let it get in this country. Just, can you just stop and let's just deal with this collectively and show a sense of unity around this so we can get through this because it's an unprecedented time, obviously, for any of us. No, I'm, this is one thing where we're completely in agreement. I can't, I can't deal with people on the left uh, uh, taking shots at the, the president and the administration. I, you know, I've, I, I plead guilty to posting a thing uh, that the Washington Post did on Fox News and all their anchors basically saying, yeah, well, this is overblown, fine. And then in the next screen, they said, oh, my God, we're you know, but like, like I don't need, like I don't need to do that. Sure, everybody's everybody's coming to a reality. This is much more serious than it is, and and just like I don't like people on the other side, especially people in my industry, comparing the over, you know, saying, oh, this is overreaction, as if like the Cowboys are overhyped. <laughs> like, right. like, no, it's not freaking sports. In fact, I hope you're right that this there's an overreaction. I hope. I hope I hope to God we don't lose five hundred thousand people. We only lose a hundred thousand or two hundred because because that way there'll be more lives saved. And I'll say you know hey sure we maybe we did take a hit to the economy. We didn't need you. I would rather have that than freaking people perishing. That's just me. But, no, completely but I, completely agree. You know this is the kind of thing where look obviously this is enormous financial implications for for this country. Right. And, and uh, thank goodness they're, they're trying to do something with this stimulus package to get money to the people that desperately need it right now. I've got friends and I'm sure you do. We all do that are small business owners that you know mm -hmm. run a restaurant, run a bar, that that's their livelihood. They need that revenue stream on a month to month basis. And that just disappears overnight. And by the way, with an indefinite end. 
you don't know how long you have to put up with it. It's like if somebody told you, you know, you had to put up with, with you know, a pain in, in one of your teeth. But it, if you just put up with it for two weeks, it's going to go away. You go, okay, you know what, this sucks, but I'm going to suck it up and figure out a way to get through this. Well, how about if they said we have no idea how long you're going to have to deal with this unbearable pain? That's what that's what these mm. people are going through right now that have these small businesses that have had to lay off employees, sh- shutter their doors. They have no idea when it's going to end. So hopefully money gets to the people that, that need it soon. Uh, you know, and that's all relative term when you're talking about the government, you know, t- trying to get money in people's pockets. Let's see how long it takes, but at least they're trying to get something done. And that's where you feel that, you know, the real pain is obviously there economically, but you have no choice but to do what you need to right now to try to eradicate this. It's that simple yeah. because you're talking about the, the toll is the ultimate toll is human life. And, you know, you think that you made a good point at the beginning. Like, when is it going to happen where it's someone you know specifically, whether it's no. a close friend or maybe it's, you know, a close friend's colleague at work and you see them post about it where you go, man, that hits home. This is a person mm-hmm. I really know well and like one of their coworkers. Is it like that? I think for a lot of people, it hasn't hit that close to home yet. So it still feels fairly remote. It's still something that you're just watching play out on TV. But guess what? That circle is tightening and tightening. And more and more people are going to be having experiences where it is someone you know directly. It is a friend. It is a, your, your, your next door neighbor's sister, whatever yeah. it may be. You're gonna, we're all going to start to experience that more and more. As the numbers go up, it's inevitable. Even looking at you know the video that Carl Anthony Towns posted, uh, which was so emotional and heartfelt, and you know you, I, I went back immediately to think of him on draft night as the number one pick, and the things oh. he said about his parents, and it was yeah, one of the greatest mo- tributes I've ever seen. I remember I mean, watching that with my son and thinking, yeah. my goodness, man, you know how good that feels to those parents. To, to hear him praise them and thank them the way that he did effusively yes. for for getting him to that point, and now here he is. How many years later? I mean, how you know, many years he's been in the league? Five, six years. He's making this video talking about his mother's in an induced coma with a t- temperature at 103 that they can't get under control. Yeah, Carl Anthony Towns. I remember. Funny, we were talking before we came on about the Legends Brunch, and I remember him speaking at the Legends Brunch a few years ago. Might have been in New Orleans, and I just remember him getting up there. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, young kid, uh, got out of Kentucky, didn't have a lot of, uh, it went, went one year under Calipari. He's, he's pro the guy was like, oh my God, he had the soul of a 50 year old. Yeah. He just was so, he yeah. just, and he had this appreciation for the old school guys and to have him go on. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even, you know, speak publicly probably when I was 18 for Carol Anthony Towns, like you said, to go do the Instagram and talk about his own mom suffering from the coronavirus. He donates a hundred thousand to the Mayo clinic, Rudy Gobert, who just got slammed beyond slammed. And, you know, having been an immature idiot and, and not actually have my acts chronicled, I did feel for him because he didn't realize how serious it was. The guy donates 500 K to relief efforts, Giannis, Jeremy Lin, Blake Griffin, Kevin Love. I mean, Mark Cuban was great last week when he came on with us, he was basically like, Hey, you know, I, I've almost baited him into giving, uh, taking shots at the administration Trump because he's had so many uh, back and forth with me. He goes, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, you know, there's no reason for me to, I got to stay out of that right now because this is a time when we all have to uplift each other. And he's saying, and I'm so proud of our, our players for being vulnerable enough to say, hey, this happened to me. It could happen to you. 
I'm quarantined. I'm fine. But bottom line is, let's be careful. I, I you know, I, I don't want to. I'm always kissing the NBA's butt. But in this case, man, it just it shows me again how much I love this league for being authentic. Yeah, and it's it's got great leadership, man. And obviously, you know, David Stern set the bar, and and Adam Silver couldn't have learned from a better person. And now, it's in good hands. And you see some of these acts that have taken place from not only the ownership and. And we had I talked to Rick Welch yesterday, did an interview with him and talked about what the Warriors have done um, for, to help their employees that cause you're talking about a lot of people, man. That, yeah. Again, it's their livelihood is tied into these live events and tied into being at that arena and the employees associated with the franchises. And then the athletes stepping up the way you mentioned and Zion Williamson, a kid that young, you know, him donating you know, a lot of money out of his own pocket to try to help these people. It's It's been pretty phenomenal to watch the way that they've all stepped up. Um, and, you know, it's, it's look, man, this has been a difficult time for this country. And you think about the people that make their livelihood in sports. It's, it's been, it's been, you know, tough to sit back and go, man, think about what this time of the year normally looks like for all of us. Uh, I love basketball as much as we do. You know, you know what I did yesterday, Tim? Uh, Tim, I, I, my, my nine-year-old, we've been trying to put him on a schedule and, um, and, you know, and, and you know, it gets this much recess. We're the worst homeschoolers, by the way. All I want to do is <laughs> well, eat chocolate world, man. I, I couldn't imagine having had to oh. homeschool my kids. I, I'm, we're talking to all of our friends that are going through that right now. And I can't imagine you, you flip that switch and all of a sudden you're so used to this routine where your, your kid is going off at seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, you get them back oh. at three o'clock in the afternoon. And now it's like they're in your house all day. And Oh, by the way, not only are they there bored out of their minds, you're also now responsible for their education. Good luck. Yeah, no, no, you're right. And I, you know, and I, and, and, and I really had, I guess I was really bummed when they actually canceled March madness because I think I still feel it's the greatest three weeks of the American sporting calendar. And I just, it just kills me that I couldn't fill out one bracket this year. Uh, it's such a part of my life. It makes me feel like I'm 12 again. And, and, and all the things I loved about sports before I became a journalist and had to take the posters down and start reporting on guys. I mean, I, that was really a big deal for me, but I, I stopped missing it because the world got so crazy so fast. And then I saw this thing on Twitter about some kid, uh, these little kids crying that Kentucky lost against Duke. Well, you know, this was 1992 and their parents were watching <laughs> the CBS yeah. replay. And I'm like, damn it. I'm taking Oliver into his room where he's not going to do any schoolwork and we're going to watch Kentucky Duke 92. Oh my God. That, that game from beginning to end was good. Never mind Leitner's, incredible shot i'm still i'm still uh, uh, completely blown away that patino did not guard the out of bounds and just let grant hill lock the court down and still something coaches do if you have any wisdom on this uh please let me know but the bottom line is my son at the end was like kentucky wins this dad kentucky wins i just keep watching just keep watching and he goes nuts at the end as if it was live and i'm going oh my gosh this is what we're missing right now. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those. That's one of those ones where I, I've watched that several times, and I, I, I was convinced for the longest time that they did not start that clock on time. I'm like, there's no way mm. that Christian Leitner could have done all that in that amount of time. But when I watch it, it's it's. 
they they got on that pretty quick, man. It's it's one of the most iconic moments in college basketball you know, history. If you make a great point in terms of letting you know this generation now, these youngsters that love the game, that love watching it. You know, today's NBA, today's college basketball. Yeah. You know, watch a game like that with a bunch of players they don't know anything about, and just say. Hey man, want to sit down and watch a game with me? This is one of the greatest college basketball games in history, and see if you can regenerate that emotion. Because for me, it's—I always find it difficult to watch any sporting event a second time. Yes, I, I me just, too. It just for me, it's a me lot. Too. Unless I, de- no, I'm not, and I'm not talking about like I do DVR a lot of sports, but I'm like obsessive about not wanting to know anything about the game. Like especially when it comes to my beloved Washington Redskins. I haven't missed a snap, I don't think, except this year was the first time, um, and this shows you how bad it got for the Redskins. It was the first time since I was a kid, and I grew up season ticket holders. My dad had 10 seats at RFK Stadium. I didn't know back, that. Back in the 60s. And so I was you, born you, into you did, that life. Boy, this, this was some of the worst teams of all time. Well, I, 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 I told my wife, like, I, I found myself this year, couldn't yeah. even believe it, really, because I didn't think about it in the moment. I thought about it yeah. after the fact. I was out doing yard work uh, while the Redskins were on. And uh, it was the first time I could remember since old enough to have memories, six, seven years old, that I didn't watch every play of a Redskins game. Yeah. So That's it, how so, much I love that team. And they were that bad this year and that hopeless that I, I just said, you know what, I just can't dedicate three more hours to this. And I'm very excited about some of the changes they've made, by the way. I'm, I'm totally yeah, back on yeah, board. Yeah, no, I, I think Ron Rivera is a good coach. Uh, and fortunately, this is the one thing that, that t- Tim and I could actually have our own podcast about and, and argue it thoughtfully, but we'll, we'll go into other things later. Bruce is going to have to beep out all the team's names because I'm one of these racial slurs guys with the team's name. I'm so, such, you know, maybe it's because I'm doing a book on this Native American guy and he hates it. But anyway, uh, the bottom line is that team, if Dan Snyder stopped owning it, I covered some legendary games uh, well, not legendary, not like Joe Gibbs days back in the back in the old days, but just like you know Clinton Portis, uh, yeah. uh, Sean Taylor, and and to see what the franchise has become, I you know I just wish Dan Snyder would sell at some point, and I'm yeah, sure a lot of people feel. I that think way. I think I compare them to the Knicks of the NFL yes. because of that exact correlation with the ownership. My gut is, um, and I, your, yours is probably too. I don't see us rejoining this season and mostly because I don't think anybody wants to take a chance of uh, fans or players being infected and that there's an asymptomatic guys who could be there in July. And all of a sudden a whole team is infected in August. I don't see the season resuming. I hope it does. I don't think they're playing basketball again this season. I think we go, we go into the NBA and we rejoin in October and November. I mean, that's kind of where I'm, that's where I'm leaning. I, I just look at the fact that, you know, just, just sometimes it comes down to doing math. It's a math problem. You start to look at the calendar, you start to look at the days, you're looking at this news every day, and the way that this is still exponentially ramping up, um, particularly in certain parts of this country, with the number of people infected, um, you know, we're, we're at almost 70,000 now in the U.S. We're over 1,000 deaths. This isn't slowing down anytime soon. They're talking about the peak of this maybe being three to four weeks from now. Um, so when you start to just do the math of that and you think to yourself, well, Mark Cuban came out and said, you know, June 1st he thought was the over-under and he'd take the under, meaning he thinks they're going to be playing before that. Well, I, I find it hard to believe because the other thing 
that, that's going to play into this. And I was in the league in 98, 99, when we had the lockout at the start of the year. And we didn't sign the collective bargaining agreement till the end of January. We, and they gave us two weeks of practice to start mm-hmm. up. And this was after, you know, having a six-month layoff, six, seven-month layoff for a lot of guys whose season ended the previous April. And so they still had to give you two weeks. And we went two-a-days for two weeks. And I'm telling you, it set guys' bodies back. I firmly believe it actually some of the older players in the league, I actually think some of those guys never recovered from that playing 50 games in that short a period of time. So I think the league is going to be cognizant of that. We're in a load management era anyway, where and they've put all kinds of stuff into collective bargaining agreement today to protect players, to make sure they get plenty of rest. They start the season earlier. They don't play any more four and five nights. The schedule's spread out. The travel's better. They have built-in rest days that are mandated by the collective bargaining agreement in terms of practice. Uh, you name it. They're doing everything they can to protect the players. So you're going to tell me, after sitting out for a couple of months, they're not going to get – they wouldn't need to give them at least two to three weeks to get ready to play. Mm. Oh, by the way, they're not going to start playing like regular season games where they can kind of get their get their legs under them. No, they're going to come back running full speed with the postseason. That's, that means even more intensity. There's more – you know, more energy expended. It's more physical, and you're going to do that right after a two-month layoff. That's hard for me to wrap my head around that the league would be highly invested in that. The only way I could see it happening where you get any basketball is if you shorten the playoffs to, say, you go best of three first round, best of five, maybe second round, best of seven, best of seven, or you only allow four teams in from each conference and you have a normal playoff after giving them about probably three weeks to practice and get their legs under them before they would even initiate that. And that, that, one, thing, Mike, that, that last one makes a lot of sense. Sorry to cut well, you off. That, that no, that's okay. I, I just I just think there's going to have to be some kind of adjustment. And then the final piece of this is I just think at some point Adam Silver is so smart, you know, and just in looking at, okay, when do we say let's cut bait for this season and let's try to think about normalcy for next season? Because if you take the playoffs – and this, they run up into August, which is very possible if you're trying to get a full playoff in. Well, training camp starts in September. So uh, yeah. how, how does that work for That's teams? A very that good they, point. How does that work for teams that would play potentially 20-plus playoff games, play for two months, and then you're right back in training camp three weeks later, and now you're, you've actually affected the start of the next year. And I think at some point, the, the numbers and, and look if some, unless something dramatic changes with with our containment of this virus yeah. over the next three to four weeks, it, unless something dramatically changes, I don't see how they are going to get in something that really resembles NBA playoff basketball, and that's what I think Adam Silver is probably looking at every single day. So I am leaning that way. I hope I'm wrong. I mean, my goodness, I desperately want to see some more NBA basketball this year. I'm sure you do. We all do, but. I just, you know, sometimes you just got to be realistic and you're just watching the news every day and you're looking at where this is going and the rate of infection and how this is not even close to peaking yet. I don't know how people are going to be comfortable again going back into arenas and being around each other, even if it's without fans, um, based on the damage that's going to be done from this to our collective psyche. Yeah, everything you said is is on the money and in line with my thoughts. And you're in the hotbed. I mean, you're in New Jersey, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, and and you know that's a hot spot right now. I'm I have a nephew that has to leave Rutgers, and we have to go uh, basically clean out his dorm room 
And I'm scared to even drive up there. I'm saying, we're going straight there, honey. Yeah. We're going into the dorm room. We're taking his stuff out, putting it in the U-Haul, and we're leaving because I don't want to even, as much as I want to stop at a diner, much as I want to stop at that Rutgers shop with all the fries and everything they put on the right. sandwiches, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I gotta. I, I can't get the COVID. Well, I, I will say, fortunately, um, and those of us that have lived in the state for a long time, New Jersey really should be separated by a border like halfway up and it should be two states, like North and South Carolina. We should have North and South Jersey. You're a South, South Jersey guy. South Jersey's a lot different where I'm at, and it's definitely nowhere near um, yes. the hot the hot spot that it is in North Jersey. But, look, as a, I think maybe a week ago, we had like one or two cases in our county. I think we're up to like 25 now. Mm. And But you're talking about places in North Jersey that have hundreds, hundreds, like pushing a 1,000. Bergen County and, 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 and Sussex County, um, some of these counties are because they're basically a lot of people actually live in those counties and commute into the city every day for work to go to New York. So it's a completely different element they're dealing with up there. But it's starting to it's starting to like, like I said earlier, it's starting to get closer and closer to home, even down here in a more uh, more rural and a little bit more remote uh, part of the state in South Jersey, it's actually starting now. Those numbers, I'm checking every single morning. I'm getting up and I'm checking the numbers, like in the last 24 hours, what's going on in our county. So it's 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 get it's creeping up, but nothing like they're dealing with in the northern half of the state. Full stop. I gotta let Tim Legler go at some point, but I one day we're just gonna do a Hoosiers podcast, and I'm gonna get like Maris Valenis on the the guy who played Jimmy Chitwood or something, because he's now a construction consultant in California. And apparently that scene, by the way, we were talking about, it was taken in one shot. Like he just kept making it and Hackman kept going. He couldn't believe it. But um, but the uh, the other thing I was going to say, I can't, I love the scene where Gene Hackman takes over the team. And uh, basically that guy's going, I don't know what Cletus did to bring your tired old bones out here. And, and he, looks <laughs> like, and he goes, leave the ball, George, would you? That's <laughs> oh, great. Oh. We could do, no, hey, we literally could, we could, easily fill like two hours just doing commentary on that movie like scene oh. by scene even just doing you and i doing play-by-play and color analysis on the on the championship game oh <laughs> that'd be great that you know that'd be what it was like get marv or, or joe buck or somebody or or mike breen to get on and basically do the hoosiers game but as if they were doing like shit would bang you know it'd just be tremendous uh, yeah, because there's 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 a, there's some sections of that championship game where you're you're watching and you're going, my God, what's the score? Like the, it looks like there's like 150 made field goals in that scene, and the score's like 12-8. Oh no, I know, I know, it's crazy and it's crazy. And also, sadly enough, my late father, God rest his soul, he would have to be shooter in the movie. He oh, shoot. shooter. Oh, he would he'd, he'd walk into my games hammered god damn it uh uh, but anyway uh all right so i just have to leave on this one um we we also have another thing in common i would well you were on our you were first state all uh first team all state in virginia very good state to be all state in and um i was honorable mention all state in hawaii but no and i knew i had no career the last thing is uh, both of our wives have the same name and so we basically make our marriages well whenever somebody in the mar- marriage says i'm sorry christina <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> very right? good point excellent point yes 
If we both say, I'm, if we, all we have to do is say, I'm sorry, Christina, and we fix our marriages, basically, whatever's going on. Goes a long way, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey, this is great, man. God bless you and your family. Thanks for the real life stuff. Thanks for your memories of your coach. I think it's going to really mean a lot to our audience right now. And, and more so, that, you know, thanks for your one world freaking views, man. You're, right now, it doesn't matter where we are. You're about you're you're about uh, you're about we, not me. And I think that's a big thing. Appreciate it, man. I love. Thanks for having me on. I'm really blessed that I got the uh, opportunity to be impacted by such a meaningful person. And uh, that's how we started and finished this. And um, you know, I always believe that a coach's responsibility, first and foremost, is to build confidence and to make sure you love it a little bit more uh, than you did when you got there. And that's what I always took to heart in my coaching, and I think more more youth coaches should take that to heart because I've seen it the other way, Mike. I've seen I've seen coaches destroy the love for the game in mm. kids, and it really had nothing to do with the kid. It had a lot more to do with the adults' issues, um, and they didn't understand how critical their impact was. It, it could be negative or positive, um, and I was blessed and lucky that I had the right guy at the right time, and it, I forged my entire life around this game. And it all started with that first relationship back in 1980. Legs, I miss you talking basketball, but I love you talking life. Peace and, and good luck. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. I'd like to thank Tim Legler for sharing his time and wisdom this week. It meant a lot. And if you didn't catch last week's Mike Wise show with Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, I highly recommend that you check it out. Mark's one of the leaders we truly should be listening to right now. Bruce Bernstein, my producer, Ben Wolfen, who puts this all together. What can I say? Couldn't do this without you. And please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams has legendary announcer Tim Brando of Fox Sports, and his stories are incredible. His Keith Jackson impression alone is better than this. Hola, oh, give me a kid Jackson, MC's college football. And we got a really good one today. Fanta 245, raised from the red clay of Nebraska football. Catch and shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong drops a new show every Wednesday. Bucket Sports and Blocks with Monica McNutt has a new show every Thursday. And of course, the Charter Show from Pure Hoops Media. BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman, they're here with the Pure Hoops podcast each Friday. Please listen, download, give us a five star review, and enjoy. And please, this is the most important part. Say a prayer for our healthcare professionals. They're truly our modern day superheroes. Wash your hands, continue practicing social distancing, and treat everyone like a cherished teammate. I'll be back with a new show next Monday. And until then, peace. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.